Hello, true crime friends, and thank you for joining me, Terry Dussold, your host of True Crime and Wine Time. So, before we get started today, I um, just want to introduce you to my special guest in the studio, Miss Raggedy Ann. Can you say hi, Raggedy Ann? Yeah, maybe not. Anyway, she's my partner here to help me when things get a little morbid on some of these shows. So she's just hanging out here with me, and she's going to help us through this. I have my wine. I hope you have yours. I don't know about you, but I need my wine time so that I can enjoy my true crime addiction. My friends would tell you, they say, hey, what do you want to watch on TV? I'm like... Uh, Dateline? 2020? Bundy? Okay, so I'm a little weird, but it is an addiction, but I have my wine to make it all better. Thank you again for listening, and I hope that you're ready for our episode this week. Today, we are learning more about the case of a Houston woman who is also known as the Blue-Eyed Butcher. I've heard of, those are the bluest eyes in Texas. Can't say blue-eyed butcher was one I had ever thought I'd be saying, but that is what it is. Some people would say it is straight-up murder. Others out there are like, you know, she was battered. He deserved it. It was revenge. Me, I'm just going to be honest. I'm not sure what I think right now. And as I started digging into the story, I was even more not sure. But all I knew what was in the news. Now I have a little bit more information, but I'll save it till the end. Let's get started. First, I'm going to have a drink. Houston, Texas found themselves thrust into the true crime frenzy, which now is a true frenzy in Texas because of all of the craziness that goes on here. This was back when things were just getting started. With this case, they found themselves caught up in a drug-fueled, sordid tale of sex and murder by a Houston housewife. Most of us don't think of housewife murder all in the same sentence. Susan Weish was born in 1976 in a little town outside of Houston called Tomball, Texas. Susan was not your typical teenager. She was quiet. She was shy. She liked to stay at home. Didn't want to go hang out with her friends, try to hook up with the football players, basketball players, or not that anyone's told us, but just want to say she was nice, quiet, little shy. She grew up and left home and went to a community college. And she worked several jobs after high school as a receptionist. The prosecution likes to tell us about her couple of months working as a topless dancer at Gold Cup prior to meeting her husband, Jeff, who we will find out likes girls that work at topless bars. This starts back in 1997. During a trip to Galveston, Susan was there with some friends hanging out, and she met Jeff. Cute, older guy. She just met him. Went on. Till so she went out to her car and she saw his business card there under the windshield. Susan took some time to think about it, decided to give him a call. You know, he was eight years older. She thought that was kind of creepy. He was really sweet. 
So she went to dinner, and she fell hard, her friends say. And Jeff fell hard. He told his friends that Susan was the one for him. Now, we will find out later on. He was also previously engaged. But Jeff spent the majorities of his 20s doing a lot of alcohol, a lot of drugs, a lot of women, a lot of partying. Jeff told friends Susan was the one he wanted to marry and have children with. After they had been dating for many months, Susan informed Jeff that she was pregnant. Jeff and Susan got married in the fall of 1988. Susan was eight and a half months pregnant with their first child. Susan and Jeff settled into married life quickly, and after their son, Bradley Wright, was born, they purchased a home. And this is when their story begins to spiral out of control for Susan. They did go on to have a second child, a little girl, a few years later, named Kaylee. Susan worked hard at being the perfect wife, kept the family home tidy, did the grocery shopping, was ready when her husband got home with dinner. Jeff went out, worked a sales job, worked long hours. Friends, family, and the outside world, the couple looked like your typical young couple with small children. Things are crazy, but they're making it work. But as we all know, the outside cover never tells the whole story of what's going on on the inside. As I tell you Susan's story about things after they got married, I want you to keep in mind, I'm telling you Susan's version right now. Later, I'll tell you the defense's version and the prosecution and give you a little more insight. Susan says that things became strained around the time of her first child's birth. Susan said Jeff was very controlling. She had to tell him where she was going, when she was coming home, and she was only allowed out of the house for a short amount of time unless Jeff was with her. Susan says that Jeff expected her to be perfect, have dinner on the table when he got home, house should be immaculate, all the kids' toys should be put up. It should be perfect. If she took too long at the store, if the kids' toys were out, if the house wasn't perfect, it would just set Jeff off. Susan's very steadfast in saying that Jeff verbally, physically, and sexually abused her. She maintains that Jeff had affairs and used drugs throughout their entire marriage and that his temper became even more explosive after he used cocaine. Susan even reveals that she contacted herpes from her husband after one of his trips to Las Vegas. I guess the saying is not true. What happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. Herpes will go with you. One of Jeff's friends, Paul Cullen, supports the claim when he testified during the trial that Jeff cheated on Susan and would on occasions drive up to Austin, Texas and smoke crack cocaine and have three ways with topless dancers. See, I told you he had a thing for dancers. Now, I just want y'all to know, I live in Austin, Texas. We do not have random people driving up here from Dallas and Houston and everywhere else that I'm aware of to smoke crack cocaine and have three ways with strippers because they can do that anywhere. I'm thinking Dallas, Houston, don't have to come to Austin. One of the Wright's neighbors, Jackie Davis, said she felt that their marriage appeared to be a master-slave relationship. 
not 100% sure what she meant about this. She didn't go into, you know, a lot of details when she gave that statement. But from her point of view, that's what she saw. Now, Susan's hairdresser said she thought Susan was being abused because she saw bruises on Susan's legs. Um, bruises on your legs do not necessarily mean you're being abused. I'm not saying Susan was or she wasn't. But I'm just saying hairdresser, legs, everybody gets them there. What about her face, her head? Didn't see any of that. But she swears she felt Susan was being abused. As often happens with domestic abuse, Susan never reported her husband's abuse to the police. Didn't confide in any friends until after she killed him. Which part of me can understand because you don't want to report it because if he finds out, he's going to beat you again or it's going to get worse. And you love him. It's kind of the way it works. But other part of me is like, seriously, you make a report after he's dead. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's keep going. January 13th, 2003 was a typical day in the home for Susan and Jeff. Susan says Jeff came home from boxing and he looked to be high on drugs and proceeded to play with their son and punched him in the face. Gotta say by accident, not sure he intentionally did it, but it happened. All of that has been confirmed. And Susan told Jeff, you need to get help for your anger and your drug issues. And she said if you refuse, she had no choice but to leave him. Well, I'm going to just say right here, my first thought is, why would you try to talk to your abusive husband when you say he's high and he's just hit your son? Wouldn't you wait to leave us sober? Then again, I haven't been in that situation, so I don't know. Because the other part of me is like, is there ever a good time to talk to your abusive husband? Please keep in mind, that is all based on Susan and the defense's version. As you can imagine, Susan says this enraged Jeff, and he proceeded to push her to the floor, kicked her over, and then dragged her to the bed and raped her. Susan testified after he finished raping her, she was laying there when she heard Jeff say, Die, bitch. And upon opening her eyes, she saw Jeff standing over her with a knife. Wanting to save herself and her children, she says she found the strength to push her six-foot-three husband aside and take the knife away from him. And then she began stabbing him over and over till she heard a knock on the door. Okay, sorry, Anne. I had to do that just to lighten the moment, just, just a little bit there. Till she heard her son at the door. She saw Bradley at the door. She wrapped a robe around herself. She went, tucked him back in bed, and then returned to the master bedroom where she continued stabbing her husband. Now, I'm going to read you a direct quote from the trial where Susan testified. I stabbed him in the head. I stabbed him in the neck. And I stabbed him in the chest. And I stabbed him in the stomach and I stabbed his leg for all the times he kicked me, and I stabbed his penis for all the times he made me have sex when I didn't want to. Susan went on to say that she kept stabbing Jeff because she was scared he would come back to life and punish her. Okay, wow. 
I need to stop and take a drink of my wine. Um, trying to think of a time that I was totally enraged and pissed off at my ex-husband. Either one of them. There's two out there. But I can't imagine that I was ever angry enough to stab 193 times. My arms hurt just thinking about it. Another sip of wine for me. Guess I could definitely say I was never in that situation where I was so mad I could do that. Here we go off for some more crazy details. Susan then says she drug her husband out to the backyard and buried him in a hole that he himself had dug for a home improvement project. There's been stories that he was putting in a fountain, some doing foundation repair. Talk about cold. He buried him in the hole that he dug. She then proceeded to repaint part of the bedroom and clean up the home. Court records show that Susan called her mother-in-law, yes, Jeff's mom, and said, Jeff and I had a fight. It was horrible. He was on drugs. He stormed out. I don't know where he is. That was that. She got off the phone. The next day, Susan went to the police department. This is the part that can't figure out. Susan went and filed a domestic abuse report so that she could obtain a restraining order against Jeff, which, okay, Jeff's dead. Why do you need a restraining order now? So was she trying to cover up what she did? Was she truly in a fog that you'll hear about later that she thought he was going to come back to life? We'll just have to keep digging in and see what happens. The other crazy thing Several days later, Susan changes their answering machine message. Remember those? Not voicemail, answering machine. It now just said Susan and the kids' names. She removed Jeff's name completely. Okay, I get he's dead, but remind you, you'll hear she said she was on a fog later. On the fifth day after the stabbing, which was January 18th, Susan called Neil Davis a very famous, works at a you know, stable law firm, in other words, it took money, called and confessed to him that she had killed her husband. Neil Davis did what he felt he needed to do. He contacted the Harris County DA's office and confessed that there was a body buried in the backyard at 10822 Berry Tree in the White Oak Bend subdivision. Neil refused to give the DA any further details. Neil then had Susan admitted to a mental health facility. Then, when police showed up to the house, they went into the backyard where they saw Jeff's half-buried body. Apparently, the family dog, who was a chow mix, had partially dug up Jeff's body and chewed the left hand off the body. Gotta stop right here. Got to take a drink. I got to tell you, as I was reading through all the court documents and stories written about this case, I was screaming in my head. Okay, I may have screamed out loud a little bit as well. Why in the blank would you leave your sweet dog out in the backyard where you buried a body? The body of the dog's master. This poor dog was trying to dig up his master. That dog now has PTSD, I'm sure. All I can hope is that he went to a happy and healthy forever home. Seriously, people, don't leave your fur baby in the backyard with his dead master. 
total animal cruelty in my opinion. That being said, we do hear testimony that Jeff was abusive to the dog. But just remember, dogs are faithful companions. That was still his master. Just got to keep that in mind. So I need to take a deep breath, have a drink of my wine, and then snuggle my fur babies, Jasmine and Josie. Now we're going to look at the evidence the police find and get into the prosecution's case. And listeners, I hope you're ready because this true crime case has many twists and turns to come. And I'm just going to say, there are things that happen in the courtroom that I never imagined would happen. I'm talking even more than the glove in the O.J. Simpson case. This is out there. Here we go. At the Wright's home, police investigators found neckties and a bathrobe sash that was used to tie Jeff up. And investigators said there was red candle wax on Jeff's buttocks, thighs, and genital area. Right off the bat, I'm thinking, how did he get candle wax on his junk if he was stabbed during a fight? I don't know, but I can just say I'm never going to look at a red candle quite the same way. And my husband's probably going to be like, yeah, we don't need any of those in our house. Police also find a small hunting knife with a broken tip and a flower pot on the patio. Later, the tip of that knife is found in Jeff's skull. Police also found the bloody mattress, bed frame, and box spring in the backyard near Jeff's body. Bury his body, throw the mattress, box spring out back. I'm thinking you should get rid of it, but okay. If you're interested in seeing the pictures, you can go to our website at truecrimeandwinetime.com and look under the Wright's Case episode, you can see actual documents and pictures from this case. Police noted that Jeff had neckties tied around his wrist and the bathrobe sash was tied around one of his ankles. Needless to say, prosecutors filed charges against Susan Wright and contacted her attorney. Susan Wright turned herself in on January 24th, 11 days after killing her husband. Susan appeared in court on Monday, January 27th, and was arraigned on murder charges. She was released on bond January 28th, pending trial. Yes, in Harris County, $30,000. Bond, she's out. Guess they decided she wasn't married to anyone else. She wasn't a threat to anyone. Not sure how that works. But I'm learning more and more. Okay, I found many news articles and went down the news rabbit hole while researching this case. I knew about this case from Houston, lived in Houston, moved to Dallas for a couple other little transient places, but knew about it. But as I was reading this, I was shocked to see all of the judgments, people instantly saying, she's guilty, she murdered him. This, without ever hearing facts, I thought I was supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. I'm not saying what she did was right. I'm not saying she's guilty. I'm just saying within hours of her turning herself in, people are already deciding she's guilty. I still believe in innocent until proven guilty because as we've seen just this year, innocent people have been and are in jail. 
Maybe we should take a drink every time I say stabbed or murdered during our show. What do we think? And thoughts? And you probably hear the ice cubes in my wine glass. Yes, I had to put those nice little plastic gem-shaped ice cubes because it's 97 degrees in October in Texas. I need my wine to be chilled. A little bit of ice cubes in there. But anyway, and what do you think about us taking a drink every time I say murdered or stabbed? Yeah, I'm guessing not too because I would be too tipsy to talk. And I can promise you I am a giggly tipsy person. Just ask any of my friends. Maybe one day we'll do an episode after we've drank a lot of wine. I'll keep that in mind. Let me know your thoughts. Go to our Facebook page, True Crime and Wine Time. During the next 12 months, the prosecution and investigators built their case based on evidence and their interpretation of what happened. One thing I want to remind everyone is that a trial is a chance for each side to tell their story. Yes, the best storytellers usually win. The prosecution in this case has a wild story to tell, and they will shock everyone in the courtroom with not only their story, but their recreation of the Wright's bedroom. Are you ready? Grab your glass, take a sip as we dive into the prosecution's version of events. In comes Kathleen Siegler, prosecutor for the Harris County DA's office, who is responsible for prosecuting Susan Wright. Kathy Siegler joined the DA's office right out of law school and is known for her interesting approach to cases, especially the Susan Wright case. Kathy has now gone on and has done some TV shows. Look her up. Kathy starts off by conceding that the right marriage was not perfect. But she says Susan lied about the severe abuse she suffered during her marriage to Jeff Wright. How does she know this? I don't know, because I just have to say, Kathy, you weren't there. Jeff can't tell you. So I don't know if you can just come right out and say Susan lied. She probably saw a lot more information than I have. So, Prosecutor Siegler threw vast numbers of witnesses that testified, and she called during the trial. She set out to prove that Jeff Wright was a kind and gentle husband and not the monster Susan Wright claimed he was. Based on the court documents, Kathy Siegler pointed to the $200,000 life insurance policy as the reason and the motive for Susan to stab her husband. Mind you, 193 times. Almost 200,000, but stab for each thousand? Almost, but on we go. A coworker of Jeff's testified that he overheard Susan yelling at Jeff for filling out the life insurance paper incorrectly, holding up the process. So, Susan was aware of the life insurance policy. Mind you, they were married and they both had life insurance policies. Kathy then called Susan's version of the story ridiculous and impossible. The prosecution pointed to the fact that the neckties and bathrobe sash used to tie up Jeff Wright had been cut, which Siegler says shows 
that Jeff Wright was tied up during the stabbing. Siegler told the court and the jury that Susan Wright tied up her husband as part of a sex game. Yeah, mind you, they had a big fight. She got all... Anyway, going to keep going. A sex game, which ended up with Susan stabbing her husband 193 times. Prosecution says the cut neckties, bathrobe sash, red candle wax are all proof that Susan Wright's story of self-defense was a lie. Prosecution says Susan Wright was a good actress and she tried to manipulate those around her. And when she realized she was in over her head and needed help, she filed a restraining order. For the prosecution to prove their story, they decided a reenactment was in order. Now, as I told you, get your wine because this reenactment is a doozy. Kathy Siegler had the bed, yes, the original bed, brought into the courtroom during a recess, had it set up with the box springs and the bed frame. I'm just saying, I, I, I can't even imagine what the jury's thinking. Imagine, you're on a jury, which it's, you know, it's our duty. But you walk in, you come back from lunch, you walk in, holy crap, there is the mattress with blood stains on it, sitting in the courtroom, the actual mattress. Susan Wright broke down in tears, crying, and was just obviously upset. I'm going to just tell you, I'm upset, and I wasn't in the courtroom. I just want to know, couldn't you have used a fake mattress? Maybe a new one? Don't need, just you don't need that. I don't, who wants to see the bloodstained mattress? Defense, of course, objected. Susan cried openly and was very distraught upon seeing the mattress in the courtroom. Is anyone surprised by that? I am not. I didn't stab my husband, but I would be distraught about seeing the bed where a man was murdered. Now, defense did, of course, object. And they said this type of theatrics should be confined to a bad made-for-TV movie which it was, and they were overruled. Kathy Siegler then proceeds to notify the court that she was about the same size as Susan at the time of the murder, and that her male colleague, who was also similar in height and weight to Jeff, was there to help. Yeah, you know where this is going. The lead investigator from the case then tied up Paul Doyle, Kathy Siegler's co-worker, colleague, to the bed with neckties and a bathrobe sash in the manner Siegler says Jeff was tied up. Kathy Siegler then climbed onto the bed and straddled her colleague and began what I can only imagine is a labor-intensive demonstration of how the wounds to Jeff Wright's body were most likely inflicted. I just have to tell you, can you imagine sitting there, this blood-stained mattress, this woman is on top of this man reenacting it. Kathy Siegler then attempted to act out Susan Wright's version by laying on the bed and having her colleague, Paul Doyle, lay on top of her to reenact 
Susan's story of taking the knife away. Defense objects. Guess what? The judge sustained the objection by the defense, and Prosecutor Siegler was not allowed to demonstrate Susan Wright's version of the story. Siegler, to this day, maintains that demonstrating the violent reenactment was the only way to drive home how exactly defenseless Jeff Wright was the night he was stabbed to death. Wow, wow, I need like four drinks after that. Just think of what I've just said. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I'm like, I can visualize it. Didn't watch the movie, which I think I'm going to go back and do. Just reading about it, I can visualize it. I wasn't there, but I can't get it out of my mind. I will be thinking about it tonight and many nights to come. So, Siegler continues to call witnesses who testify about Jeff and how he was a nonviolent loving husband. Jeff's father, Ron White, testified that he knew his son had a drug problem, but Jeff was never violent and would never be violent to a woman. Of course, the defense now gets their turn. Now, one thing I want to stop and say right here, please keep in mind I'm giving you the small highlighted version. You can on our website, as I mentioned earlier, True Crime and Wine Time, see the actual report documents, a list of all of the different articles that I'm referencing in this, court documents, newspaper, everything is there. You can also find a link in your podcast on the app down in the notes for this episode. Here we go with the defense's turn. Defense attorney Neil Davis told the jury how Susan was in constant fear of her husband and that anything short of perfection, I want to say Stepford wife, was not allowed and would set Jeff off. To help counteract the prosecution witnesses, the defense called upon additional witnesses. There was one who told about Jeff's repeated abuse of the family dog. Mind you, mentioned earlier, the dog who's got PTSD, is part chow, we're just going to call him Ralph. Ralph, I'm sorry you were abused. I hope you have a great forever home. You deserve it. Attorney Neil Davis even brought up to the court that Jeff was convicted of assaulting a stripper with whom he had a previous relationship with. I guess Jeff's dad, Ron, also thought his son couldn't have possibly have done that. I don't know, they didn't ask, but I'd like to know. Defense attorney also called one of Jeff's party friends to testify to the man he knew as Jeff Wright. Interesting thing to note here is that this friend called the defense attorney to say, hey, I want to tell you about the man that I knew as Jeff Wright. On the stand, the man testified that Jeff often lost control of his temper and flew into violent, drug-fueled rages. Those close to Susan also testified that they had long suspected that Jeff was abusing Susan and that Susan was afraid of her husband. Okay, I just want to stop and we're going to say this is, and what do we call this, uh, true crime, wine time, TCWT, PSA. 
if you think one of your friends, loved one, coworker, or somebody's being abused and that they're afraid of their husband, have a conversation, have a second conversation, have a third conversation. Don't wait until it's too late. What do you think, Ann? You agree? Think Andy would agree? The defense also stated that the police did not pay close enough attention to the crime scene and that police investigators totally dismissed the holes in the wall that had been sloppily patched from Jeff's repeated punches. I got to tell you, I had a teenage son, punched holes in the walls. You can see those. They're pretty obvious, but defense attorney Neil Davis says they totally dismiss this. They will go on to later tell us about some other things that they felt the police dismissed. Susan Wright took the stand in her own defense, where she held fast to her story that she killed Jeff in self-defense and went on to testify that she was in a fog after it happened. She said that she had a mental breakdown from all of the years of abuse. Defense attorney even said during his first meeting with Susan that she was detached, that she didn't seem like she was really there, and that she still feared of her then-dead husband, who she thought was going to come back to life and punish her. Susan maintains that she did not tie her husband to the bed, and the neckties and bathrobe sash were used to tie Jeff to the dolly so that she could take his body to the backyard and bury it. You will see in the crime scene photos a picture of that dolly as well. In the closing arguments, defense attorneys told the jurors Susan Wright did not kill her husband for the $200,000 life insurance policy, as the prosecution wants you to believe, and that Susan killed her husband in self-defense. He also continued with his accusation against the police department, stating they fumbled several key pieces of evidence. What did they fumble? They never tested the bed frame for fibers from the neckties and bathrobe sash. They didn't collect fingernail clippings from Jeff, which would have shown Susan's DNA from the scratches she received as Jeff defended himself. Now, I thought they always did that. You put the little brown paper bags on. Maybe that's just CSI. Law and order. I don't know. But Neil Davis, defense attorney, also reminded the jurors that there were no bruises on Jeff Wright's wrist or ankles, which is impossible if he was tied to the bed while being stabbed. Think about it. Tied to the bed, somebody starts stabbing you. You're going to try to pull your arms up. Yeah. Glad y'all can't see me because I'm doing it right now, but there would be some bruising and marks on your arm, your legs. I would definitely say yes. The defense attorney went on to tell the jury that the fact that Jeff had cocaine in GHB in his system, defensive wounds on his hands, forearms, and back, which was all testified to by the medical examiner, proved Susan Wright's story that her husband came home drugged and she killed him in self-defense and that Jeff Wright triggered the attack 
that ended his life, Neil Davis also went on to state, I hate to say it, but some people just deserve killing. Wow. <laughs> just wow. And that just blows my mind. I am in total shock that a defense attorney would say this out loud. Yeah, you can think it. Maybe tell it to yourself in the mirror in the bathroom, but verbalize it out loud for the public. So what do we have? Two totally different versions of the story, which, as we know, is not uncommon in murder trials or in most stories. With the conclusion of closing arguments, the jury was sent off to deliberate. This is a good time to have a drink. As I mentioned earlier today, I have paired with our rights case, the St. Supri Sauvignon Blanc Dollar Hide. It is my absolute favorite wine. It is my go-to wine. Um, St. Supri is a phenomenal winery. Their wines are great. The reds, their whites. You heard about them earlier and you'll hear about them again later and the special offer that they have for our listeners. But just have to say, they're my favorite. They've been my favorite since, I'd say, 99, 2000, somewhere back then. But on with our story. On March 3rd, 2004, after only five and a half hours, five and a half hours, people, the jury reached their verdict. Guilty. Susan Wright showed very little reaction to the verdict. Unlike her emotional outburst during her testimony upon seeing that mattress in the courtroom, she was really quiet. Two days later, the same panel rejected Susan's claim that she was under influence of sudden passion and defended herself when stabbing her husband 193 times. What that means is they didn't buy that it just suddenly happened. They felt she knew what she was doing. Susan Wright was sentenced to 25 years in prison. I, I can't help but tell you, I wonder why 25 years. If the jury did not believe she acted in self-defense and it wasn't sudden passion, why only 25 years? They could have given her anywhere from probation to life in prison. Part of me thinks they believe she had been abused for many years and that it wasn't self-defense. I don't know. I, I can't forget the other victims in this story. I'm not just talking about the family. I'm talking about the kids. Brandon and Kaylee Wright, the two children who lost their father and then their mother is in prison. The children are now being raised by Ron Wright Jr., Jeff's brother, who adopted the children. I'll get back to the kids later. As we all know, this is not where the story ends because we have appeals. Susan Wright filed her first appeal in 2005 and her conviction was upheld. Then in 2008, Wright reappealed 
And in 2009, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals granted a new sentencing hearing, not a new trial, but a new sentencing hearing, after determining that Wright's counsel rendered ineffective assistance during the punishment phase of her trial in 2004. State District Judge Jim Wallace, who was the same judge that presided over the original trial, wrote that no one disputed that Susan had killed her husband, but he felt there was a wealth of mitigating evidence not presented at the punishment stage, and that this evidence, if the jury had heard it, the judge felt they could have come to a different decision. Due to the fact Susan had never been in trouble before, and maybe acted as a result of what the state law calls sudden passion, which would result in a less severe sentence, perhaps even probation. So what does this mean? Basically, it means that her defense attorney did not attempt to get her a better sentence. So off to trial we go again. Unless the DA's office simply drops the sentencing hearing and just considers the time that Wright has already served and allow her to walk out of prison on probation. Kathy Siegler, former prosecutor, you remember her? Yes, she was the original prosecutor who brought out the bloody mattress, told a reporter that she can't wait for the new jury to hear additional evidence and that they are going to realize what a cold-blooded murderer Susan Wright is and that she promises this time around Susan Wright could very well be going off to prison for as long as she lives. Whew! I guess it's a good thing for Susan Wright that Kathleen... Uh, I guess it's a good thing for Susan Wright that Kathy Siegler is now in private practice. Hold on. Make sure your wine glass is full. And let's get started with round two of the Susan Wright Blonde-Eyed Butcher Abused Housewife Resentencing Trial. At the new punishment trial, with the exception of a few exhibits, the trial court admitted into evidence all of the evidence from the first trial. And don't think for a moment the new trial is going to be less dramatic. In some ways, it was reliving the original trial, but with new jabs from each side. New defense attorney, Tommy Lafon, I like saying that, Lafon. New defense attorney, Tommy Lafon, said that you don't stab someone 193 times for no reason. It is the result of years and years of pent-up anger, abuse, frustration, and terror. Prosecutors, however, said it was divorce by premeditated murder. Ouch! That's kind of harsh. So, Assistant District Attorney John Jordan said Susan was not a battered woman. She was a pissed-off wife who chose divorce by homicide. Prosecutors admitted that Jeff Wright was not the perfect husband and that Jeff had a history of abuse. But they said that Susan did not make any claims of any abuse until after she murdered her husband. Therefore, he was an abuser in their eyes. Prosecution was seeking 45 years this time around, and the defense was asking for Susan to be released on probation for time served. 
The scary thing to me is that Susan was taking a big chance by going back to trial. She could wind up with a longer sentence than she was originally given. She could get life or she could get probation, but what a risk. I'm not sure I'd be that brave. Then again, I can't imagine even serving a day in jail. The defense called two expert witnesses this time to testify about the domestic violence. It was theorized based on the testimony and evidence in the 2004 trial that Susan appeared to have suffered from emotional abuse, intimidation, threats, financial stress, verbal abuse, and isolation. According to the experts, women who have been physically abused often lie to others about the injuries to avoid getting their spouses in trouble or to avoid additional abuse. I mean, it's a cycle here, guys, come on. And according to this expert, based on Susan's 2004 trial testimony, she was a battered woman. Hands down, was a battered woman. The defense called Misty McMichael to testify to her past relationship with Jeff Wright. Misty was engaged to Jeff before he was married to Susan. And Misty is now married to Chicago Bears football star, Stephen McMichaels. She had met Jeff when she worked as a stripper. And she moved to Austin with Jeff. Jeff stayed with his parents. And she lived in her own nice, sweet little apartment. Missy said that Jeff was charming in the beginning and very sweet, but that he eventually became abusive, especially after he had been drinking. She said at first it was just verbal abuse, but it then turned physical when he threw her down the apartment spiral staircase and backhanded her. In one particular violent attack, Jeff swiped a glass on the table and breaking it and sending glass shards into Misty's chin. Misty filed a police report and Jeff was arrested for assault with bodily injury. Misty testified that Jeff was an abuser with a Jekyll Hyde personality. Okay, I have to say my ex-husbands, both of them had that going for them. Luckily, Mr. Dussault does not. He's just a good guy. So the defense, this had to have been sticky. They then called former defense attorney, Neil Davis. And one of the things that they asked him was, why hadn't he called Misty to testify in the first trial? Davis testified that they couldn't reach Misty and that they had left her messages and a letter, all of which Misty disputed. Defense attorney Tommy LaFon also asked the former defense attorney, why he didn't call any expert witnesses to testify about domestic violence. This is classic. Neil Davis said, because he didn't want to overwhelm the jury with too much expert testimony and that there is only so much psychobabble a jury can handle. Okay, dude, come on. Psychobabble? Talk about an expert. Uh, you know, listen to him. So the most surprising witness to me was Dr. Brown. Dr. Brown was the doctor that Susan Wright met upon being admitted to the psychiatric ward of Bintob after the attack. 
Dr. Brown testified that the former defense attorney had told him the day before jury selection that he would not be calling him to testify due to the fact that the defense didn't know about the different stories that the defense attorney found when reviewing the files. Did your ears perk up? Mine did. What different stories? Well, we will find out. The defense attorney asked Dr. Brown to elaborate, and he did. Brown testified that Susan was unable to make any eye contact with him and that she sighed and she broke into tears. He said her overall presentation had a distinctly dreamy, drifting, unfocused quality that clearly suggested she was somewhere else. Brown also said that when Susan did talk, she spoke in a very flat voice in which he called a disassociated state. When Dr. Brown began to ask about Jeff, Susan became terrified, telling him that her husband was looking for her and her children. She wept as she talked about the way he had punched and kicked her. Brown gently asked her about the night she killed Jeff, and according to his notes, he said Susan talked about the way Jeff had shouted at her and shaken her after she told him he needed to get help and how he then forced her to have sex. Then, Susan told Dr. Brown that Jeff went to sleep. It was only after he was asleep, she said, she went into the kitchen, grabbed a knife, and started stabbing him. Brown said that he felt Susan tolerated as much abuse as she could, and that once it spilled over to her children, she had some kind of mental break. Hello, I would too. I think most moms would at that point. Brown then said that former defense attorney Neil Davis said that Susan had never told him that Jeff had went to sleep, and therefore he thought it was better to go with the story that she took the knife away from Jeff and stabbed him. Dr. Brown said he tried to explain to Neil Davis that he could explain to the jury the discrepancy in Wright's story and that him seeing Susan in the weeks after the killing, that she was still so traumatized that she was unable to recall everything and her mind couldn't handle all of the details. Click, there's that other story. I'm trying to remind myself as I tell all of you that Dr. Brown was a clinical psychologist who had testified in many trials for the prosecution and the defense. In other words, he is a true expert. And I think Davis should have listened to him. Why hire an expert if you don't listen to them? I mean, geez, guys, this is the stuff that makes me yell at my TV, my computer, and gets me all fired up. Listen to them. They're the expert. Let's continue after a quick sip, of course. Before I move on, I want to share with you what Susan Wright said about the changing story when asked by Skip Hollingsworth in an interview for Texas Monthly. Skip asked Susan, why did you tell Dr. Brown that story about killing Jeffrey when he was sleeping? I've racked my brain, but I don't remember telling Dr. Brown anything like that, Wright said. I barely remember talking to him at all. I wanted to share that with you because I think I've 
the trauma that I've experienced in my life. And I have to be honest and say, there are things I can't remember saying, doing, being said, the exact order. If you want to read more, you can find the link to the article on our website or in the notes for this podcast. Back to the trial. Both sides rested, and the case went to the jury, who over the next two days, in 10 hours of deliberations, came back and sentenced Susan Wright to 20 years in prison, five years less than her original sentence. Susan Wright apologized to her in-laws after sentencing. I want you to know that I'm sorry. Again, I'm sorry. I'm sorry he's not here. I'm sorry you don't have your son and your brother and your brother-in-law. And I'm sorry that the kids don't have their father. I'm sorry that he's not here. Susan Wright has been eligible for parole since February 28, 2014. She was denied parole on June 12, 2014, and then again, July 24, 2017. Her next parole review date is in July 2020. We will have to stay tuned to see what happens for that. Oh, wow. Now time for several steps, because I'm telling you, what a case. After all of my research, in going down the case document rabbit hole, I have decided that she was an abused wife and that she killed him to protect herself. I can't say what prison time would be fair because life is not fair. Murder's not fair. Taking someone else's life, it's not fair. I do think that 20 years is too much. And I think the state terminating her parental rights was not good for the kids. As I mentioned earlier, Brian White Jr. adopted the children after Susan's rights were terminated and after a custody battle with Susan's sister. According to Skip Hollingworth's story in the Texas Monthly, February 2010 issue, Susan has no contact with her children and that she doesn't think they know where she is or if she is even alive. This just breaks my heart for so many reasons. Not for Susan, but First, I don't believe, based on what I've read about children and trauma, totally removing their mother, who was their caretaker from their lives completely, all of a sudden, bam, she's gone, her father's gone. That's lasting trauma. Yes, I know she took their father away, and I'm not condoning that. I'm not saying she's right. I'm just saying that the children suffered trauma from losing both of their parents. And I hope and pray that they have had a good life and that they've had someone to talk to so that they can grow up and they can be the best person they can be. I want to thank all of you for listening to True Crime and Wine Time. I am Terry Dussold, along with my friend Raggedy Ann. Until next time. Stay safe, be vigilant, and live life to the fullest.